from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The acting Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller has resigned. Elaine McCusker has been the Deputy Undersecretary since 2017 and acting Comptroller for the last year and a half. President Trump nominated her to be the permanent Comptroller in November, then withdrew the nomination in March. Defense News reports her last day at the Pentagon will be next Friday. Scientists at Army Futures Command are moving a potential coronavirus vaccine to the next phase of testing. The commander of Army Medical Research and Development Command, Brigadier General Michael Talley, says his command believes it's a, quote, step closer to finding a vaccine that works. National Defense Magazine reports Army scientists at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research have two backup candidates that are moving to the next level of research, too. The Navy has a new leader for information warfare. Rear Admiral Jeffrey Trussler will add a star and replace Vice Admiral Matthew Kohler as Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Information Warfare N2N6 and Director of Naval Intelligence. C4ISR reports Kohler retired June 5th. Phase one of reopening the Pentagon is underway, but at least 60% of its employees will still work from home. The Defense Department Office of Inspector General has a new review of best practices from past emergency responses to inform how the defense contracting community responds to this one. Teresa Hull is Assistant Inspector General for Audit, Acquisition, Contracting and Sustainment. Teresa, thanks very much for coming on the program. This work is a compendium uh, of work that you've done in looking at past, uh, past emergency responses. Tell me what you looked at as you went back and looked at DOD IG work in past responses to, that you thought would be informative, that you thought would be instructive for this one. So our intent behind this product was to be proactive. We were aware of best practices and lessons learned from our past work. And in our summary report here, we, we highlighted four areas, communication and coordination, documentation, consistency in the contracting process, as well as staffing and training. So let's talk about each one of those in turn. What did, what did you find in the work that you went back and looked at? I see at the beginning of this, you looked at um, uh, emergency response to weather events and to other different kinds of events. What did you see when it comes to communication and coordination preparation that would apply in the case that we're talking about today of a pandemic response? So what we found was that increased communication and coordination during the emergency response is extremely important and effective because if all of the offices involved in the contracting process are aware of the contracting um, actions in place, items being ordered, or issues that arise, it'll be a much more effective process for everyone overall. In the, in the work that you reviewed, where did you find that organizations inside the department went wrong or didn't follow best practices to their detriment or examples of maybe where they communicated well and got excellent outcomes as a result of it? The uh, United States Army Corps of Engineers has several advanced contracting uh, mechanisms in place, one of which is a global contingency construction contract. And that allowed for a lot of the alternative care sites that you've seen um, get started, operation centers, staging areas. Uh, the Defense Logistics Agency also 
has um, contracts in place for medical supplies, uh, personal protective equipment that have been instrumental in the department getting what it's getting what it needs. Those advanced contracts can be put in place for particular types of contracts or can the department potentially use that concept, use that vehicle a lot more broadly than it is now, Teresa? Well, for the contract I just mentioned with the Defense Logistics Agency for the supplies and the personal protective equipment, as the department starts to open, um, potentially organizations and components are going to need these supplies that they may not have needed in the past. So in order to leverage these contracts, um, they need to look at potential capacity to see if they can execute additional orders and whatnot on those actions rather than issue new contracts if, if possible. I wish we had time to talk about all four of these. Unfortunately, we don't, Teresa, so I want to skip documentation and consistency and go to the staffing and training piece of this because in just about every conversation that I have with folks about pandemic response, they point to the people being important. What did you find as you went back and reviewed staffing and training in some of the past emergency responses the Pentagon's done? Well, with staffing and training, we found that um, it's, it's very important to have the right people in place. And oftentimes with the number of contracting actions that are executed in a disaster response or in a pandemic such as COVID-19, you, you find that agencies have to pull staff sometimes from other groups to support that effort. Now, it, it's, it's, we recognize that uh, funding may limit the ability to have the appropriate number of staff um, and with that, the training that goes along with executing these efforts but in, in, in order to have an effective administration award and administration of a contract, you need to have the right people in place. We just have a couple of minutes left, Teresa. You devote a segment at the end of this work to fraud. And uh, I wonder what you found as you went and looked at fraud, whether there are themes to the ways that uh, people and organizations try to take advantage of the department or whether there are disparate things that fraud might look different in this response than it did in previous responses? Well, our efforts in the COVID-19 response are, are early. We're very early in a lot of the work that we have. Um, our Defense Criminal Investigative Service has, um, has a poster on our website that lists different things to look out for um, or different areas within COVID-19 that they're focused on. Um, one of the things I can share is that um, as contracting officers execute these contracts, um, they need to, to vet the vendor, vet the contractor, look at the system for award management and make sure that they're, you know, that, that it's a legitimate contractor, look at the performance uh, ratings of the contractor to ensure that they know what they're getting into and that they're aware of any, any um, associated issues. Teresa, about 30 seconds left. That ties back to the element that you uh, reported on regarding documentation, I imagine. Yes, yes. So we understand that um, the contracting officials are in a fast-paced, ever-changing environment with this COVID-19 pandemic. But we, we've seen these themes reoccur across time panning back to or spanning back to 2005 with Hurricane Katrina and then as recently as last year with the hurricane response. So there are definitely lessons learned that the contracting community can ensure that they focus on as they execute the COVID-19 funds to reduce the potential for fraud, waste and abuse. Teresa, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate the chance to talk about your work. Thank you.
Up next, the coronavirus pandemic, the economic downturn, and the 2021 defense budget. Straight ahead on Government Matters, where does the money come from to fill the department's wish list? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Defense Secretary Mark Esper says the Pentagon needs 3 to 5 percent annual growth to invest in new weapons. But the defense budget isn't likely to increase anytime soon. New research from Gavini says the Pentagon will probably face more competition for money as the country recovers from the pandemic. Bill Greenwald is senior fellow at the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security at the Atlantic Council. He's former deputy undersecretary of defense for industrial policy. Bill, welcome. Thanks for coming on. The intro to this Gavini report, which is very detailed, is uh, written by no less than Bob Work and Sandy Winnefeld, and it says the 2020 federal scorecards designed to analyze whether the bold call of the 2018 national defense strategy has had a material impact on the department's defense program and budget. My question to you is, has it? Has the NDS impacted the way the department does business and spends money? Well, I would say that um, it's just starting to. And I think where you're starting to see that is in the research and development, uh, budgeting for prototypes and so on. But as far as material uh, impact on, on long-term procurement programs, that's still a few years out. Given the Pentagon's budget cycle, that makes sense though, doesn't it? Because the NDS com comes out in 2018. At that time, I'm doing the calculations in my head that you've always told me about. 2018, the department's actually working on constructing the 2020 budget and so we're about to see the 21 budget uh, in process so that makes sense that that's where we are in this cycle doesn't it bill no it, it, it does make make sense uh i just think that the, the 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 big issue for them is going to be whether they can actually get uh, additional funds in addition to all the other priorities they have in the 22 and 23 and 24 budgets, which is going to really uh, be the, the test on whether they can actually achieve the NDS. So as you went through the scorecard, what did you see that made an impact on you as far as either the way the department will ask for stuff or the way that Congress will authorize or appropriate stuff? Well, well the, the, the most interesting thing I saw in this report was really the way they 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 took the data and 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 uh, put it around the mission areas. And frankly, from a from a congressional standpoint, that might be a great thing in the future to budget by mission areas and see the changes. So, for example, you can see that uh, despite the the uh, uh, push to do more autonomous systems, they're not putting the money in it yet. And so that's going to be important. And that's very helpful for, for Congress to see that versus just seeing it over in a multitude of programs. You are seeing increases in prototyping in 6-4. That's a great thing for Congress to know as well. But again, the long-term procurement programs are not quite there yet. I saw the same thing that you did. I, I don't understand it to the level that you did, Bill, that you do, Bill. But I saw the same thing that you did, that the way that this is grouped could potentially be tremendously helpful for understanding it. Has that, think, think back to when you were on SASC, did, were you able to see stuff that way or did you have to go out and kind of hand collate this data before 
uh, when it wasn't available to be put together the way that it's available now? Or was there just not that kind of visibility? There really isn't this kind of visibility. I think this is a great tool. Uh, I think the department has proposed in the past to go to some type of mission budgeting like this. The appropriators are still very uh, happy with the way an individual programs to see where those individual programs rack and stack. I think maybe a combination of mission budgeting versus individual programmatic budgeting might be a, a great way to go. But yeah, as, as a staffer, I'd have to try, to try to put all this together. And frankly, I couldn't do it as well as Govini did. So rearranging, restacking all that stuff, how difficult would that be? Is it just a matter of somebody saying this is how we want to do it from now on? Or is it more a more complicated process policy-wise or procedure-wise on the Hill than that? Uh, well, that's a good question. I, I think it's, 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 it has to be acted on and used upon and, and perhaps the Hill will see this to Govini board report and see that this is, this is a better way to do things. Uh, perhaps the department will as well. I think the, the, the concern on the Hill will be if they only see the mission budgeting and are asked for greater flexibility to move between the mission accounts, that'll uh, uh, reduce their oversight powers, and that's something they probably won't want to do. Um, we've seen Secretary Esper, as I mentioned, talk about the need for increases in budgets. Secretary Mattis did the same thing before him. Do you think everybody has reconciled themselves to the idea that's probably not going to happen and that flat budgets at best are what the department should anticipate in the out years? I think that's the uh, uh, standard view uh, right now. I think that if the department were really focused on the fact that they do have a, a large bow wave in, in the future, of, of uh, procurement programs that they have to uh, give money for, they should really look to see if they can get any stimulus money whatsoever. And we've got three, four, maybe a couple more uh, stimuluses coming down the pike. They need to try to buy out some of these lines to free up money in, in, in the future. If not, uh, it's going to look pretty bleak for them in, in, in the out years. Bill, thanks for coming on as always. Great to have you, Bill Greenwald. Thank you. Up next, a bump in the road for acquisition in the new Space Force. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the force didn't get and why. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. The Senate's version of the 2021 National Defense Authorization Act is headed to the Senate floor after the committee voted it out 25 to 2 this week. One reform the Air Force says it wanted wasn't in the bill, though, and the committee says it's because of the Air Force. Caitlin Johnson is associate director of the Aerospace Security Project, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Caitlin, thanks for coming on the program. What happened here? What was supposed to be there that wasn't there when the, the SAS voted out its version of the NDAA. Sure, so I think the Air Force was expecting some approvals for acquisition processes that they had requested in their original acquisition bill that just didn't show up. Um, actually, the NDA, the public summary that was released kind of passes on most acquisition um, aspects. There was just one little bit in there about national security space launch and ensuring that it's implemented in the right way to sustain a healthy space industrial base. But that was kind of it. I think Congress is waiting on the Air Force and the Space Force to resubmit their acquisition 
uh, reform uh, report um, and get all their, you know, their T's crossed and their I's dotted so that they um, can move forward with some key legislative changes. So uh, uh, Space News, Sandra Irwin writes this this week, a report titled Alternative Acquisition System for the United States Space Force was sent to congressional committees May 20th, but the Air Force notified them the next day that what they'd received was not the final version. What do we know about what's in there, Caitlin, and about what the Air Force at least is signaling it would like as far as acquisition reforms? Yeah, so this was an interesting event to watch happen in late May. Um, the Space Force finally submitted their congressionally mandated report on space acquisitions reform, uh, something they were supposed to submit, I think, back in March. Um, but not long after, the Space Force kind of walked it back in the Department of the Air Force, you know, by uh, by organization, um, saying that this report was just a draft and not final. So I'm not sure if they received some feedback from Congress or from the administration on some of their requests, but that's my best guess, that somebody somewhere said, hold on a minute, uh, and now the Space Force is trying to manage that reaction and change or alter their original wish list to better fit what was expected. So is it reasonable to assume then that regardless of what might have been in that draft, we're not sure 100% what it is that the Air Force and the Space Force want as far as acquisition reform. They haven't decided what they want to officially ask for yet. Is that a fair way to read this, Caitlin? I think, I think it is. I think it's definitely a solid wish list. Um, it highlights nine requests that the, that could radically change space acquisitions. And I think a lot of the requests um, in there were what acquisition experts and what you know people like me tracking this issue were kind of expecting certain changes. Um, the Space Force did present three top priorities. Um, and I don't imagine that those would change too much if that is the, you know, the three top things that the Department of the Air Force is really going after. Um, the first is budget line consolidation. So the Space Force makes clear that this is their top priority. Um, and they're asking for Congress um, to and um, the authority to allow them to manage money at a higher portfolio level for greater flexibility. This would allow them to move money into different programs if there are unexpected changes during the lifetime of a program, as long as it's under the same portfolio um, within it. So if we're thinking about satellite communications, and there are two programs within satellite communications. One might be protected and one might be unprotected communications. You could move the money around those two programs as long as they're both, the money's not moving out of the satellite communications portfolio, for example. Technically, they don't need any legislative action to implement this, but I would be kind of unprecedented for this untested new organization, the Space Force, to take this on. On the other hand, Congress has been calling for innovative solutions and reduced spending on space systems, and this has been proven to help in other agencies. So as that, as their biggest wish list, our biggest wish list item, I don't expect that to change too much. It's something that um, Dr. Will Roper has really been pushing as well um, in his role inside the, the Air Force. Did you see anything here? Did you get any indication from comments that staff or the members of the committee or anyone else made that they have problems with what the Air Force has proposed? Or is it just a matter of not getting the homework handed in on time? I think part of it's not getting in on time. I mean, they 
did this in late May. They submitted their report. Um, Congress has been working on their NDAA for much longer than just a few weeks, um, which is why the original request was for March. Um, perhaps we'll be, see some of these um, legislative changes and re uh, requests from the Space Force worked into the final version or maybe into the House version. Um, but as we saw with the, the Senate markup, it was, uh, you know, pretty mum on, on acquisition reform. About 30 seconds left, Caitlin. So it sounds like this is not a lost cause. If the Air Force can get this handed in, it could still go into the Hask bill, could be conferenced into the final version of the NDAA this year. So it's not, it's not done. It's not over with necessarily. Is that right? Yeah, I agree. And I think acquisition has always been a top priority for Congress when evaluating, you know, even the the how the Space Force was uh, created and, and funded. We saw a lot of acquisition um, requests in the NDA from last year. So I don't think they're going to drop it just because the Air Force got in late. However, they might not be as willing to make all of the changes or um, give the Air Force as much leeway because they um, didn't give Congress the time to properly, properly work this into the document and have those key debates um, among the members. Caitlin Johnson, thanks as always. Great to have you. Thanks, Francis. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.